Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to the short and sweet Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is like Psalms 120 through 134. Uh, it is titled A Song of Ascents. And the Song of Ascents uh, are a group of psalms that are joyful. They're a group of songs uh, of, of, that are based on praising the Lord and being faithful to Him. And, and there's a group of songs that, that highlight uh, the importance of worshiping the Lord and enjoying his presence through worship in his temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, these, these, psalm, uh, these songs together uh, were near and dear to Israel's heart as they were instructed and commanded to show up three times in the year at the place that God chose for uh, to cause his name to dwell, which is in Jerusalem. And so we're going to read Psalm 131 together, keeping in mind that these would have been sung on, on those travels to Jerusalem as they ascended the, topogra the topography to arrive and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, these were sung on the way there, and they were sung right there in the temple on, on the steps as well. These are the songs of ascent, and we are focusing our time this morning on Psalm 131. Let's read the word of God together. A song of ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's read it one more time. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that we can come and approach you in prayer. Lord, what a joy to have brothers and sisters in Christ come together on a Sunday morning to address you, Lord, to seek you, to pray to you, to plead with you, to ask for your favor, to ask for your blessing to ask for your wisdom, to seek your guidance, Lord, 
to seek encouragement and counsel from you. We thank you, Lord, that we get to do all of those things. And we don't take it for granted, God, that we get to do that. May it always, Lord, humble us to the very core of our being that we can approach you boldly. And we recognize, Lord, that we do that not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of our righteousness, not on the basis of any ability that we have in and of ourselves, Lord, but only on the basis of your grace and mercy that has been shown to us through giving your son to die on the cross for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven, so that our hands, even though we have scarlet-stained hands because of our sin, you make us white as snow, Lord. And so we can approach you. And we can approach you humbly, and we can approach you with confidence, and we can approach you with great eagerness, Lord, seeking you and your help in every trial and trouble that we face. We can be calm, and we can be quiet in our hearts before you. Lord, would you teach us how to do that this morning well? Would we learn from your, your servant David and his example to us, Lord? And Lord, would you, would you make us a people who learn how to wait well, who learn how to wait like a weaned child for its mother. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, traveling often takes a great deal of time and requires a lot of waiting. My family was just rehearsing uh, last night because I had a friend who stopped by, a childhood friend I haven't seen in a long time. We were just rehearsing last night about uh, a 17-hour drive we did from the Outer Banks uh, all the way to Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, originally, we were going to do that with a break in the middle, but we decided to uh, forgo the, you know, save the money uh, on the hotel and just try to plow through. And so it was a 17-hour drive. Uh, for us who are very accustomed to, at most, driving about 35 minutes uh, to here, uh, running around in El Segundo, where we live, coming down here, meeting with people. Uh, maybe the, the long drive is to the Master's Seminary to do some work, right? Uh, or, or to uh, f finish some homework or some paper or something. But 30 minutes is the normal commute. But here we were on a 17-hour drive, and it's not anything that we are used to, not anything that our kids are used to. Uh, and so you can, you know, imagine the, the trouble in waiting. That's a real long time to wait, to get to see, you know, uh, Mimi and Papa, right? And so our children did their best, and they did. They did pretty good. Uh, but I remember at one point, uh, Abraham, he must have just felt like he'd been in this car seat for so long, and it was dark out, and, and everyone else, uh, maybe Elias was still awake, but uh, my wife and I were are trying to stay awake, and, and Abraham, you know, tired of being in a car seat, we just hear this little voice say, Mama, help me. <laughs> Help me. He's like the, uh, this, this little itty-bitty baby cry of, dis, you know, despair. And, and we just heard him say that. And we just, we just began cracking up. Because uh, you're like, wow, you really know like you hit the limit. It, didn't, it wasn't even like crying and yelling and being mad. It was just, someone help me. Right? And uh, 
What I love about that is it, it, it reminds us of how, how difficult it can be when you're waiting. Sometimes you need to cry out to the Lord for help because you realize that it's hard to wait. It's not comfortable to wait. To wait is trying. To wait is difficult. To wait is its own trial in and of itself. It's not something that comes naturally to us. If we were to ask you, you know, what's, what are some of the favorite things that you do? None of you would say, oh, waiting, right? Uh, if I were to ask you to wait for something, you'd probably, probably you know, say, no, let's, I don't want to, right? And so this is, this is the importance of waiting. When you're headed somewhere, you have to wait. And in Psalm 122, uh, it says that, reading verses 1 through 4, you can turn there for me real quick. Just a few psalms uh, before in the Song of Ascents. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So that's, and then, and then next verse, verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That is something that every family looked forward to multiple times a year, uh, to go and to give thanks to the Lord and to, to, to worship him. And I think it's also fitting for us, who we know we are looking forward to a, the return of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, his return to Jerusalem, him making Jerusalem a city of righteousness, him ruling and reigning there. And then we're looking forward to, even after that, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, where there too, we are going to, the, those uh, of the nations will gather to that place to go up to worship the Lord. And so this is why it, it has been an appropriate metaphor to speak about our lives as Christians, as pilgrims, or as those who are making an ascent. We are headed to Jerusalem just as they were. And so we also have to realize that just as they needed to wait, we, needed to, we need to wait as well. In the psalm before this one, uh, the one directly above, in Psalm 130, uh, we see uh, how, we, how we are to wait for this Redemption, this day of redemption. Verse five says that I will, wait, uh, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his enemies. David is looking forward and calling Israel to look forward to that day of redemption when their sins are wiped out, when they enter into a new covenant relationship with God as a nation, and where they get to enjoy forgiveness of sins and the Lord ruling and reigning and having provided deliverance from all their enemies. Deliverance from sin and deliverance from their enemies. They are awaiting that day. And David as he writes, is waiting for that day as well. He knows that he himself did not create that day. That day is promised to his son who would come. And that promise is seen in Psalm 134, the psalm right after ours. If you were to look at that, you would, you would see in verse 11 in Psalm 130, I said 134, 132, 
verse 11, it says that the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And then if you jump down, verse 13 says that for the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. And there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so we see the great messianic hope there that a descendant of David will come, will rule, will reign in Jerusalem in fulfillment to all that God has promised to David and to David's promised son. And so David and Israel are waiting for that day. We too are also waiting for that day. And as we wait, we can get ourselves into trouble because when you wait, it is incredibly hard to wait well. We, we need to understand that we are, we are not only supposed to wait, not only do we have to wait if we have this hope, but also there's a specific way in which we are to wait while we wait. Because I think you would agree, if you've been around any impatient people, that not all people wait the same. Not all waiting is the same. There's a good way to wait, and there's a bad way to wait. There's a proper way to wait that glorifies God, and there's a, there's a way that, that you could wait that shows that you have a prideful, grumbling, upset, angry heart at God. And so it matters not only that we wait, but how we wait. And if Psalm 130 uses the picture of the watchman to describe the eagerness we should have while waiting for the Lord, then our Psalm in Psalm 131 uses this picture of the, the, you know, the weaned child with its mother. The weaned child with its mother in order to show us the peace, the contentment, the stillness, the humility that we should have while we wait for the Lord. And so consider this, this short psalm, a three-verse guide to waiting like a weaned child. So the main idea of our psalm this morning is that we see how to wait for the Lord as a weaned child so that through trials and troubles, we may have calm and quiet souls that patiently wait for the day of redemption. And so if you wanna wait well for the Lord, if you're gonna wait as a weaned child, then let's begin with the first point here. You must wait with a humble heart. You must wait with a humble heart. Look at how David begins this psalm. Oh, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What are we seeing here? We, we're seeing an expression of absolute humility before the Lord. David is saying that, God, I am humbled before you. The current state of my heart is not one of pride. It's not one of, of you know, uh, of being arrogant or, or haughty. The, the attitude of the heart expressed here is one of profound and, and simple humility. He does not have an inflated or swollen view of himself. And he's addressing this prayer to God. He says, oh Lord. 
And in this prayer to God, he acknowledges God, which is what happens every time we pray. And he shows that, that God is the one he should run to to seek help and to seek comfort while he waits. And when he does that, he is also showing his true humility. God is God and I am not. So I don't need, I don't, it's, it'd be the worst thing for me to have a lift up and raised haughty heart and uplifted eyes before God. There should be not an ounce of arrogance or pride in my heart as I wait. Wait with a humble heart. Stephen Yuley in his book, Longing for Home, A Journey Through the Psalms of Ascent, mentions Jonathan Edwards' definition of humility and then a distinction that Jonathan Edwards made between two types of humility. And so first, Edwards' definition of humility. Edwards' definition is, uh, of humility is a habit of mind and heart corresponding to our comparative unworthiness and vileness before God or a sense of our own comparative meanness in his sight with the disposition to a behavior, to a behavior answerable thereto. That last part's maybe a little bit difficult to get. Yuli writes that Edwards mentions two kinds of humility, natural humility and moral humility. Natural humility arises from the perception of our meanness, which would be our smallness as creatures before the creator God. In other words, it arises when we compare ourselves to God's natural excellence, his greatness. We're weak in comparison to his power, foolish in comparison to his wisdom, ignorant in comparison to his knowledge, small in comparison to his sovereignty. That's what it means when, we, when you speak of natural humility or that meanness or smallness as creatures before God. You see, if you're, if you're, if you're struggling with, you know, okay, I hear you. You're telling me I need to wait with humility, but I, I notice that I'm proud and I'm arrogant. What should I do? You should cry out to the Lord and you should set your mind on who it is that you are speaking to. Think about who he is. Think about how he's creator. Think about how great he is. Think about how he didn't ask your permission to knit you together in your mother's womb. He didn't ask your permission whether, you know, to give, make, you, make you six foot four or five nine. He didn't ask your permission to, to give you all sorts of good and wonderful gifts that you have received. He put you in the time and place and to the family, to the location, to the geography, all of that that he saw fit in his wisdom. And he made you and he sustained you. He's given you every breath that you have ever breathed as a gift of his grace. And so you think about God and how great he is as creator, as sustainer, as the one who is providentially ruling over all things. And then you look at yourself and remember who you are in comparison to that one who is so great and so far and so above you. I'm nothing, I'm dust. I'm just like grass of the field. Sprouts up for a moment. It's going to wither away as soon as the hot wind hits it. I am nothing compared to him. That's natural humility. And David has that. But also Edwards speaks of a moral humility. And Yuli summarizes 
this when he says that this humility arises from a perception of our vileness as sinners before God. In other words, it arises when we compare ourselves to God's moral excellence, his goodness. We recognize that we've sinned against God's grace and mercy and that we're without moral virtues adequate to commend ourselves to God. And as a result, we're aware of the utter de- our utter dependence upon him. Humility arises from a biblical understanding of who we are and who God is, which leads to absolute submission and absolute dependence upon God. So when you think about, I want to be humble, think about natural humility. Think about who he is and what he does and all that God is doing in comparison to you. Think about that now, and, and that would lead you, Lord willing, to a natural humility. But then also think about moral humility, which is to compare yourself to God in regards to moral praiseworthiness or moral blame. And we know that God is totally morally praiseworthy, that there's nothing evil in him. There's no darkness. He is all light. But in me, I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. I go astray, I wander, I sin, I lie, I break the word of God, and I am morally then not praiseworthy. I'm morally condemned. And that condemnation should stir in me a deep understanding of humility, a moral humility, that I deserve nothing from God except his wrath and his punishment for being a lawbreaker. And I think that David, well, has both of those. And he experienced both of those as a, as a man who, who committed great sin against God. I mean, just read Psalm 51. The superscription there says, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went, uh, went to him after David had gone into Bathsheba which was that that horrible sin of adultery that he committed with Bathsheba and then murdered by put, getting uh, Uriah put to death. That's the beginning of Psalm 51, gives that context. And then David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do do you see his sense of moral humility there? He knows that he should not be king, he has, he has disobeyed God. He, he has absolutely disgraced the position of being king of Israel with this sin. And yet, he is humbly relying on the mercy of God and he has not gone to despair. He has not given up. He has not given up. He has not given himself over to hopelessness because God is a God of mercy who blots out transgression and washes us thoroughly from sin. Isn't that good news? Shouldn't that humble every single one of us? So if you're struggling with humbling yourself as you wait, consider natural humility and consider moral humility. And these things will help us to stay humble and not lift up our hearts and not cause our eyes to be raised too high. Both of those are just ways of speaking about prideful arrogance. And we know that those things are things that God hates. Proverbs chapter six, verse 16 and 17 says that there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And right at the top of the list, you have haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. The heart that's lifted up, the eyes that are, that are lifted up, 
are indicative of human arrogance and pride. And God says here that he hates it. Why does he hate it? Because given, or given the difference between God and us, given the difference between his moral excellence and ours, we have no ground to act like we're anything before him. And so just give it up. You're just faking it. You don't need to fake it anymore. You can just acknowledge and be humble. He's God, I'm not. He's great, I'm not. He knows, I don't. He's gotta do this, I can't. He's perfect, I'm not. He's holy, I'm wretched. I need saving, I need rescuing, I need redemption. And only he can provide it and only his mercy and grace is there for me to hope in. You see, a person who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We want to see to it that we wait in humility, that we wait in an absolute place of, of humility before the Lord. Because pride very quickly leads to another sin, and that's of presumption. Pride very quickly leads to presumption. So we need to crush our pride and we need to curb or put and check and stop or cut off presumption before it rears its ugly head. And David does this. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Notice what he says there. I do not occupy myself in things too great or too marvelous for me. You see, pride often gets us into trouble because then we begin to think and act and plan on the basis of an artificially inflated view of ourselves. And then we get upset when everyone else doesn't have that same view and they're not doing what we think they should do. And so we're mad. And so we're angry. And so we're disappointed, right? And we, we understand, just, I mean, just think about a proud person. Does a proud person want to wait? Does waiting and pride go together? You know, uh, no, I shouldn't have to wait for this. What do you mean put me on hold, right? Uh, thank you for calling AutoZone. This is, you know, Jeff speaking. Can you please hold? Boom. I'm not holding for nothing. I got big problems right now. I need you to get somebody on the phone right now. I've been holding forever. It's been taking way too long. And you get the idea. Pride people, they get upset about waiting. Why? Because it reminds them that the world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't. So guess what? When you are humbly waiting, you are showing that you are not a proud person. You are, you are showing that, that there are things going on that are bigger than you and that you're not the Lord of the universe, which everyone must give an answer to and fulfill your plans and do the things that, that you want them to do when you want them to do it. So you will never wait the way you're supposed to wait if you are a proud person because you won't be and grow terribly impatient and frustrated with those who are around you. William Van Gimmeren says, the proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. I'll just say that again. The proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. 
He plans and schemes in his heart how he can outdo outdo and outperform. But the godly know that true godliness begins in a heart that is not proud and with eyes that do not envy, end quote. May we have a humble heart as we wait for the Lord. Guys, his, in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, it says that his thoughts, God, my thoughts, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, hear this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's not something that a humble person wants to admit. That God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And that he doesn't have to explain everything to us. His ways are higher than ours. It's enough for us to be humble and wait on him. And there is great peace There is great contentment. There's great simplicity. There's great comfort, great satisfaction with just saying, I am a servant. I'm here and I'm waiting on the Lord. A humble heart knows it cannot control everything. A humble heart knows it does not need to control everything. A humble heart does not try to control everything. A humble heart's totally content to control some things while waiting on the one who does control everything. A humble heart knows that it cannot know everything. A humble heart knows that it does not need to know everything. A humble heart does not try to know everything. A humble heart is totally content to know some things while waiting on the one who does know everything. And a humble heart knows that it can't do everything. A humble heart knows that it does not need to do everything. A humble heart does not try to do everything. A humble heart is totally content to wait on the one who can do everything. And that's exactly where David's heart was at as he waited. And it's exactly where our hearts should be at as well. Because if they're not there, then what you will realize is that the external things, those things didn't have to cause your heart to react in the way that it did. But because of your pride and because of your presumption, now there's a storm in your heart. Yuli uh, puts it this way. He says, pride is our biggest problem. Not poor health, rebellious children, difficult neighbors, broken relationships, financial problems, unfulfilled dreams, or daunting afflictions. David knows it, and he knows that his pride makes it impossible for him to hope in the Lord in the midst of affliction. So may we crush our pride curb our presumption. May we realize that though it's raging and crazy and wild out there, it does not have to be that way in my heart if I will be humble before the Lord, if I will ask myself to him. I love what Spurgeon says here. He, he, he talks about, um, you know, the, those who, who maybe struggle that they don't understand all the deep things of God, of like election and predestination and how that aligns with the the free agency of man and how God orders everything and all of these things. He's kind of drawing this analogy that, you know, look, you can, we can, we should study these things. We should understand these things, but these things are ultimately beyond us. 
And some people don't like that. That's not good enough for some people. So let's hack it up and let's simplify it and make it fit into my mold. Spurgeon says here, here's a little child that has just come off his mother's knee and expects to understand a book on trigonometry and cries because it cannot. And here's another little child that has been down to the sea and is fretting and kicking in its nurse's arms because it cannot get the Atlantic Ocean into the hollow of its hand. Spurgeon says, well, it will have to kick and that will be the end of it. (laughs) But it is is fretting itself for nothing without any real use or need for its crying because a little child's palm cannot hold an ocean. Yet a child may sooner hold the Atlantic and Pacific in in his two hands without spilling a drop than you and I will ever be able to hold all the revealed truth of God within the compass of our narrow minds. So if that's the case, then let me slow down and humble myself and wait on the Lord and not worry about, you know, what other people are thinking of me and not worry about, you know, how, how why is this happening? Why is this happening this specific way? And why, why did it need to do that? And all the different things, the frustrations that, that come up along with that. Spurgeon says that when we begin asking why, to try to know the reasons of all divine providence. He calls it an endless task before us. If we have become like a weaned child, we shall not ask why, but just believe that in our heavenly father's dispensations, there's a wisdom too deep for us to fathom, a goodness veiled, but certain. There's a wisdom in God's ways that are too deep for us to fathom, a goodness veiled, but certain. If you're going to wait for the Lord like a weaned child, you need to wait with a humble heart. And this leads to our second point. If you are going to wait for the Lord as a weaned child, you must wait with a still soul. You must wait with a still soul. Verse 2, David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. When we look at how things are turning out, when we look out into the world and we see the way things are going, when we see the different threats uh, that there are to, to ourselves, to, uh, to our family, to, uh, to our nation, to just the evil that's happening in the world, to the, the, the catastrophes, to the, the tragedies, to the natural disasters, to, to all these things, it can be incredibly difficult to keep a calm and quiet soul before the Lord. But David did that. How did he do this? When we are waiting, when, when the wicked seem to prosper and, and God seems to be distant, when, when the righteous seem to suffer and, and that there's no end for them, when death is at the door and there seems to be no way out and when God's providence is dark and our circumstances are difficult, how can we still our souls? How can we wait in a way that pleases the Lord. We must wait as a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with his mother. Mother, And I saw during worship, it was perfect. Drew uh, on Natalie, just totally asleep, totally relaxed, totally peaceful, totally quiet, no kicking, 
No thrashing, no swinging of arms, no screaming, no frustration, no anxiety, but just peace. Peace, stillness, comfort. That's the picture that David wants us to take home and to think about. And it should be encouraging for us because that means that, that we can have that. You can have that. And you should want to have that. And you should have that for yourself. And, and you should seek that when you notice that your heart is beginning to rage and your soul is stirred with stress and with anxiety and all these different feelings, that you need to stop everything you're doing and you need to slow down and say, Lord, help me right now. Help me right now, please, Father, to humble myself before you and distill my soul. Make me, Lord, as a weaned child. Help me, show me how to treat my soul as a weaned child with its mother and bring it to a state of peaceful, calm rest in the Lord. A child is typically weaned, at least in ancient Israel, between ages of two and five. And at that time, the child stops breastfeeding and begins to eat solid food. It's a significant stage in the development of a child. It's celebrated uh, historically, um, and in, in a lot of Jewish traditions, still celebrated today. If you remember, Isaac was, uh, the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a feast in Genesis 21 said, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was, was, was weaned. Um, and so this would typically happen between the ages of, of, of two and five. Uh, and, and at those ages, the child would demonstrate a, a maturity, uh, a, a, a a sense of peace and restfulness when, they, uh, when they're with their mother and they're not sent into instant turmoil over every little uh, pang of hunger. And so being with a mother as a young child, as a baby, can rest and be satisfied and content and at peace. And that's how our souls should be as well. We must labor for that. One commentator says that the soul, when David says that, that his soul, that he's calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child, this commentator says that this was by deliberate action, that the soul was reduced to a calm, gentle, submission, submissive, and patient, contented state. This is a good place for our hearts to be. This is where we want our hearts and our souls to be continually. 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 5, Peter says that wives are called to adorn themselves with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And then it'll say that you are Abraham's daughters if you never fear anything that is frightening. You see, there's never an end to the things that we can be frightful, uh, fearful over or fretful about that can whip up our souls in, into a great sense of uh, uh, anxiety. And we are to fight against that, to become as a weaned child, 
gentle and quiet in spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Psalm 46, verse 6 and verses 9 through 11 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. I mean, just since the, the, the movement, the shaking, the, the, the craziness happening, he utters his melt, the earth, uh, he utters his voice, the earth melts, says that he makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If you have the God of Jacob as your fortress, then you can and should be in your soul. Have your soul just be like a winged child with its mother. And so if you're going to wait how the Lord calls you to wait, humble yourself, humble your heart, and still your soul. If your heart is not humbled before the Lord, then everything around you is going to make you internally upset. All the externals are going to cause your internal soul to be a storm within itself. But if you will humble yourself, then you can have a still soul before the Lord, and you should labor for that and seek that it's always in that place. This leads to our, our third and last point, and that's that if you're going to wait for the Lord as a weaned child, you must wait with unwavering hope. You must wait with unwavering hope. So humble yourself, humble your hearts, still your souls, and lastly, wait with unwavering hope. This is what David did himself and called Israel to do as well. Verse three, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There is nothing that will help you more in times of, of, of trial, in times of difficulty, in times when your soul is most tempted to rage and storm, there's nothing that will help you more after humility than that humility being coupled with hope. A proud person, and by the way, those two kind of fight against each other as well. Because if you think, oh, I'll, I can you know, skip the humility part and I'll just hope. A proud person and hope do not go together. A proud person doesn't want to hope. A proud person wants things realized and expected right now. They want things right now. They don't want to wait. They don't want to hope. But the call is to wait with an unwavering hope. And it's hope that functions like an anchor for our souls so that when wind and waves are beating around us, we are held fast. We are held firm. And that, that rock which we are anchored to has to be the Lord. That's why David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Don't just, this is not an empty hope. It's not a vague hope. It's not hope for whatever you will hope for. You know, it's specific. It's hope in the Lord. And when you think about that, uh, that may not, you know, uh, mean much to other people, but hope is only as good as the person in which the person is hoping in. 
And that's why hope is, is so important because we look at the Lord and if we're gonna hope in him, we have to hope in who he is, his character or his attributes and, and in hope in his promises. And when we consider the Lord, he is the one who is perfectly faithful. He is the rock, just as was said earlier. He is the rock. He is immovable. He is unchanging. He is, is perfect. He is immense. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. We run to him and we don't need to fear. He is our mighty fortress. And so we hope in him. He will accomplish all his holy will. No one will thwart his plan. That is a solid rock to be anchored to for our hope. I love what Stephen Yoli writes. He says that hope is fixed on God's attributes. And he says that there's no hope if God isn't immutable, meaning if he's not unchanging. There's no hope if God isn't immutable. His promises might be altered. There's no hope if God isn't sovereign. His promises might be thwarted. There's no hope if God isn't omniscient, his promises might be misdirected. There's no hope if God is not omnipotent, his promises might be hindered. But he is all these things and much more. Amen, church? Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. This is not blind optimism. This is not wishful thinking. This is biblical hope which all the saints of God are called to have and which they are called to have in the Lord God himself who made heaven and earth. The one through whom all things are from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Our hope must be in him. Psalm 42 verses 10, 11 says, as with deadly wound, a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So these enemies are, are attacking and taunting him. Where is your God? And the response is, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Again, excuse me, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We are to hope in the Lord. And when we hope in him, we realize that his character is totally faithful and that his, then him being totally faithful then means that his promises are totally trustworthy and we can depend on them completely. The hope that David is calling for and that we are called to have has real content to it. It's based on God's character and it's based on specific promises that he has given. And as I mentioned earlier, you go to the next Psalm and you see the promise of all promises, that God promised David a son who would sit on his throne, who would bring in everlasting righteousness and peace, who would subdue all his enemies, who would, who would deliver God's people both from the sins that they deserved from God's wrath and also conquer and overcome all of their enemies, sin, death, the devil, Satan, and usher in and bring in a time of everlasting peace and righteousness. This is the promise that God gives. It's the promise he makes to David. It's the promise that's developed in the scriptures. And it's this 
promise that he made. And not only did he promise it, he also made an oath concerning it, which Psalm 132 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And so this, this hope that David is talking about is the hope for Israel. It's the hope for the nations. It's the hope that Messiah would come and that he would come and deliver his people and save them from their sins and then establish his kingdom and bring an everlasting peace and righteousness for all time. This is the hope that David had for himself that he calls Israel to have as well. It's specific. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And we see this developed in, in, in a, a bunch of different places. But one that we, we, might, we might point to is that Zechariah chapter 12 describes a future day for Israel and for Judah says that the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so notice that you have, you have that day coinciding with a great deliverance from nations gathered together against Israel in a final uh, climactic end times war. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. We have to see this, these things go together. The deliverance and the restoration, the fulfillment of the promises made to the son of David for Israel, for Jerusalem, coincides with the same day that they will be cleansed and they will have their sins forgiven when they will, as a nation, enter in the fulfillment of the new covenant promises that God made. Zechariah 14, verse three, says that on that day, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that half the mountain will move northward and the other half southward. And jumping down to verse six, it says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. This is, I think, a really interesting statement because if this is speaking about the future, which I think it is, I know there's some who, who maybe don't see this as, as something that is going to happen as in the future, but after this deliverance of, of Israel, after this, this cleansing of the nation, after this moment when Israel finally accepts their Messiah and says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then there's this awesome thing that happens where all the nations begin to flow to Jerusalem to offer up year after year. They go up. They go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feasts of booths. 
They're going to be singing these pilgrim songs. They're going to be singing these songs of ascent. How amazing will these be when they're on their mouths and they're singing these things because the Lord has established Zion. He has restored the fortunes of Israel. Paul discussed this and reaffirms these things in Romans 11, 12 to 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That same moment is described in Isaiah chapter two. Hear it again and notice the theme of going up to the mountain of the Lord. It says in Isaiah chapter two that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, many peoples, these are Gentile peoples there, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I think that that is a day that's still coming. We look forward to that day when the nations are going up. When, when, when the day that they have waited for has finally come and they get to go up and ascend the mountain of the Lord and show up in the house of Jacob and worship the Lord and give thanks to him. Now, if you don't think that that's still a future day, there's another thing described in the book of Revelation that's chronologically after that. And that's a day when we have a new Jerusalem where the new heaven and the new earth have come and the uh, old, old former things have passed away where death and crying and pain and tears have, are totally gone and wiped away. And what we see in that time is, is we see a Jerusalem coming down onto a new earth and what we also see is that uh, in Revelation uh, 21 that you have kings of the earth going to it, going up to offer their glory to the Lord. And worshiping there. And that's how the Bible ends with that picture of a new Jerusalem, God dwelling with his people, the very thing that we have waited for for so long. And that is the specific nature of the hope that David is talking about. It's an all-inclusive hope, a hope that God has promised, a hope that's been developed and explained through the, through the prophets and through the New Testament, and a hope that is still awaited for, for by us today. So we wait. We wait the day of resurrection. We await the day when the world is, is restored. We await the, his kingdom. We await the, the new heaven and the new earth. This is what we're hoping for when we hope in the Lord. This hope is to be an active expectation. And one commentator describes it this way. Rather than, speaking of David, rather than letting his ambition prompt him to, the pl to place his hope in himself, the psalmist is content to find his hope in the Lord. And he calls on the nation 
to put his, its hope in the, permanently in the Lord as a pattern for all life, as a pattern for all of life, not just an isolated occasion. All their hope, all of the time, should be in the Lord alone. And Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the psalmist tells us, let Israel hope in the Lord from this, from henceforth and forevermore. Spurgeon says, faith, blossom, faith blossoming into hope is the way of sanctification, the road to a calm and quiet spirit. You cannot say to yourself, I will fret no longer and then expect to never fret. No, brother, you must expel one affection by another. One propensity must be vanquished by another. You are too ready to trust in man. Trusting God will, put, will push out carnal confidence. You are expecting great things of the world. That is, you are expecting great things of the world. That is foolish. Expect great things of God and you will cease from carnal hopes. You are seeking from day to day for this world's good. You feel an ambition rise. Seek after the eternal good and feel an ambition to get nearer to God. And the other ambition will die. You are worried by fears and anxieties. Come and rest your soul upon the faithful promise. And resting there, your anxieties will cease. Brothers and sisters, the, the way that we wait, the proper way to wait, is to wait like a weaned child. It's to wait in such a way that we wait with humble hearts, that we wait with still souls, and that we wait with an unwavering hope because the future hope promised to us is glorious and it's real and it is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we confess, Lord, that too often we allow the circumstances of this world, our fears, exercise controlling power over our souls. And we know, Lord, and have learned that it's not to be that way. So God, would you, by the power of your spirit, help us to be humble and to be still and to, to have unwavering hope, Lord, that, that we may hope in you and in your character and in your promises, Lord, that you will solve every issue. You will right every wrong. You will call every deed into judgment, Lord, and you will, you, you will, punish the wicked, Lord, and you will bless and reward the righteous with entrance into your heavenly kingdom, not on the basis of any works that we've done, but only by pure grace in your son. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to proclaim that message with stillness of soul, that we proclaim it to ourselves, Lord, that we would proclaim it to others. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who finds their soul raging against you, Lord. Lord, would they be encouraged by the fact that they can, right now, humble it before you, still it before you, and put their hope in you today, even in this moment. And Lord, we know that they will have your forgiveness we know, Lord, that they will have your righteousness counted to them. We know, Lord, that they will be made your children and will be a part of your church and will enter into your kingdom, Lord. So we pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning, that they would do that. They would turn from their sin, put their faith and trust in you, and that they would begin to hope, the same great hope that we have with unwavering 
hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.